Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. We're really excited to be joined by Mary Colwell. She's an environmentalist, producer and author. I'm going to mention a bit more about what she's done um, shortly. But first of all, some news. We've got the second edition of home for the journal of biophilic design it's now out you can go on to our website journalbiophilicdesign.com or on amazon and uh, download and buy your copies there um many thanks for your support for those who have already bought i have to say it's a very beautiful edition um i have got a copy here i'm just going to show you on the screen look how amazingly beautiful it is full of inspiration about homes how we can design with nature and sustainability and bring views of nature, better acoustics, better lighting and design with the people and the users in mind. So anyway, enough of that plug. Um, as I said, Mary's um, an environmentalist, producer and author. And some of our listeners may actually already know about you through your Curl U work, which I hope you're going to touch on later. Many thanks for joining us today. Um, really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much. Um, but she's worked um, at the BBC Natural History Unit and she's got a new book coming out called The Gathering Place, um, which comes out in April 2023. Um, she walked the Camino in lockdown and it's a spiritual look um, and um, sort of the connectivity of us and nature. She's also won the RSPB medal, for the, which is their top award for services to nature and conservation. She won that last year. She's won other awards from the BTO, um, WWT and others. I've got her here today because I don't know if anybody knows, but there is a new um, natural history GCSE. And I've got Mary here to uh, explain, tell us about it and um, and also if potentially how you can get involved and if you want to lobby your schools to make sure they get it on the curriculum. Um, that's the main thing. So we get more kids engaging and connecting to nature. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, what was the sort of the nugget thing that, that sort of got you interested in in nature and wildlife and conservation? I think... Um... My first love, actually, uh, was was dead wildlife. Oh, <laughs> <It's> surprising! <laughs> no, my first love was fossils. Actually, growing up uh, in the sort of the Staffordshire Moorlands, as I did, that's where. Well, I was there from about the age of um, eleven. Um, going out for walks with my dad, we often found fossils in in the the limestone walls, and I remember thinking they were the most wonderful things um, that the. The, the stories, I wanted to know what they'd seen. I wanted to know what it was like to be a shellfish in an ancient ocean. You know, it, it just set every sort of neuron firing, finding fossils. Um, but also back in the 70s and 80s, we had more wildlife then. And I we had a quite a biggish garden because we lived out on the outskirts of Stoke-on-Trent. And um, I remember hearing and seeing a lot more wildlife than we ever do today. I remember hearing cuckoos, every, you know, every spring and buddleia bushes full of butterflies and grass snakes down in the compost and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so although I would never say that I was a child naturalist, I definitely wasn't. I, um, but it was there and it it just fired me up. And that grew as I as I went on. And the other thing that uh, grew alongside it was this love of, of the world, just because I thought it was amazing, but also the desire to tell stories about it. Um, so I think at heart, I love stories. I love telling the stories that engage people's hearts and minds and souls in the world around them. 
And so putting the two together just seemed like a natural thing and therefore going into the media. So storytelling and wonder seem to go together hand in hand, don't they? They're a hand in glove. And I think that's what fires me more than anything. That was not what I expected you to say at all. Um, (laughs) Finding dead wildlife and it's from fossils that you've got this really innate love of living, the living planet around us. The earth, uh, rocks are, are the pages of a book. So you can look at the earth as just one massive storybook that's telling us about ages of volcanoes and great flooding events and warm tropical seas, polar ice caps, you know, that when the land was encased, they called snowball earth, and the whole, pretty much of the whole planet was encased in ice. Um, you know, every every rock you pick up is is the page of a, of a, of a wonderful story. And we just need to unlock that. And suddenly you're engaged on this planet that's been so dynamic and so vibrant and so full of drama and audacity. You can't help but be completely entranced by it. And we're just the last stage of the, the latest stage of all that. So I don't see it as that back then and now. I just see me as part, you people listening to this, as part of that ongoing story. Um, and what we make of our page of the book is up to us, really. Um, you know, we can talk a bit about that. But, you know, we are writing a page of that great history of the earth. Mm. And you just have to leaf back in time just to be amazed and to hope that the future is, we we get it right. That's what I hope. Yeah, me too. Um, well, I think what you're doing and, and all the stories that you're writing and, and, and telling, I think is inspiring people to... Um, to think before they act um, and to act in the right way and to do make make the better choices ultimately um, you mentioned um, in when your description of when you were a child you remember the sound of cuckoos and I mean I remember that I remember you know I mean even I was in London um, you know I was in North London but we'd we'd hear the sound of, of cuckoos and there, would, there was so much more what birds I mean I, I was fascinated by my birds I've always been it's kind of I don't know quite know what it is it's just the beauty and the freedom of it and and if I come back I want to come back as a swallow please <laughs> um but um I mean there is a, such a depletion of wildlife um you know and in the UK alone and it's it really is frightening I mean there's so many schools and cities and and towns um and estates and things are so built far removed from our natural world. Um, I suppose what the Journal of Bioflick Design is trying to do is encourage the rationale behind why we need to build better and why we need our connection to nature. Um, we talk about it from a psychology point of view. We talk about it from wellness. We talk about it from the physiology, physiological point of view, you know, just our physical health. Um, but I, I also love to understand how we all fit in, just like you say. And I love that when you say we're like the sort of the we're just like at the moment we're just and I say at the moment but we are just at the moment we're just the last page of the book um of earth um and how we choose to write it I think I, there was just such a powerful thing you said there how on earth does the next generation stand a chance to learn about nature if they're so far removed from actually seeing it or experiencing it or hearing it or smelling it or touching it um I mean what's your greatest fear um do you think you know if the next generation um doesn't understand the importance um, of wildlife and nature? Uh, I think the problem that we have at the moment is that the way that we've developed over the last, over my lifetime, 
um, is that we have just moved further and further and further away from nature as being just a part of our everyday lives. Um, you know, now 80% of the UK lives in urban settings. So only 20% of us live any, in anything we call countryside. Um, and so as that we've shifted more into the towns and the cities, um, we've shifted our cultural attitudes, our language, our um, sense of who we are has shifted away from the natural world. So everything is happening at once. Um, the shift towards towns, the shift in our culture is happening at the same time as what we demand from our countryside, from outside the towns and cities, from the natural world around us, those demands are increasing all the time. And so the demands on the natural world are increasing. The way we extract what we want from the natural world is getting more intensive and more damaging, and we're moving away from it. So all this is creating a perfect storm of disassociation, lack of emotional response, lack of emotional intelligence when it comes to dealing with the natural world. Um, and the fact that we, I'm talking about the natural world as opposed to us is, is an example of how language has shifted. The natural world is out there and you, I are in our human world and human world and natural world for most people are separate. And I think that's my fear <clears throat> that we're handing on to the next generation, a fractured view of the planet where people are not, are sitting on the surface of it, almost sort of disassociated from the nitty gritty stuff that goes on around us. And we just take what we want a bit like, it's a bit like a supermarket and you walk around the trolley and you just take what you want. And then, and there isn't even much to pay at the checkout when you go out, it all is given for free. <clears throat> and that's the world that we're passing on to the next generation. So what we have to do, I think, is re-engage with that wonder I was talking about at the beginning. Awe and wonder, everything starts with that childlike, wow. Everything starts with that. Everything starts with once upon a time there was, and you were right in there, aren't you, as a kid? You know, you know, the giant came over the hill. Oh, and you want to know what happens next, you know. And all our children's stories, all of them, involve nature in some way. And yet, by the time they leave that childhood, we've gone into the much more mechanistic, much more human, much more results-orientated world, which we then carry on in schools. Mm -hmm. So although biophilia and our love of the natural world is still in all our children, it very quickly after those very early days gets kind of beaten out of us as we become more urban. Mm -hmm. So I think my, my fear for the future is this lack of connection, this lack of understanding, and this lack of awe and love for nature. And that's what I'm passionate about putting back. Not yeah. just me, there's lots of me out there. What we're all of us in the conservation nature world uh, want to do is to bring everybody together under this big green umbrella and say, be as involved as you want to be, but don't ignore it. You know, Just mm -hmm. be as part of the solution as much as you can not everyone can do everything, um, but just care. Mm -hmm. you know, just care. That's all we're asking. Care about it. That's, that's lovely. Um, the, the, the people often quote um, 
um, E.O. Wilson um, as, as like kind of the one who kind of really advocated biophilia and made by the word biophilia and the term biophilia popular. And it's, I think sometimes it can be a bit um, disjointed. People think, oh, it's about, you know, just bringing it into the built environment. It's just about design. It's just about that. But, you know, if you go back and read his book, um, you know, he was fascinated by ants. He was fascinated by ant collars. He was fascinated by um, how everything's interconnected and how we can learn from it. When we obviously there's a whole biomimicry movement and, you know, sort of the science behind all that, which I find fascinating as well. Um, but, you you know, you the way you phrased, the way you've um, described how we are all part of the same thing. Like I say, there's us and and then there's the outside world. You know, it's actually, no, we are we are part of nature. We are nature. We are we are one. We are all one. Um, I mean, the, the Descriptor Review emphasised the importance of, of learning about biodiversity and ecology at all levels of education. Um, and I interviewed Dom Higgins, um, Health and Education Director for the Wildlife Trust, and a few weeks back, and and, and I, I heard from him that, um, that you are um, campaigning and designing a natural history GCSE. Mm. Um, can you can you tell us about it um and what do you what's your sort of hopes and ambitions for the for the course what do you hope it's going to do well um the work that's the very good work uh, wonderful work actually that's been done at the university of derby by miles richardson um nature connectedness department um they uh have shown they they gather all the sort of information from around the world and and have shown very clearly that by the time children reach secondary school there's a marked drop off in connection to the natural world. You know, you're pushing against an open door at primary school, really, as we've all said, kids just go, wow, and, and want to know. By the time it gets to secondary school, what happens? It becomes uncool, it gets crowded out, it becomes very academic, it gets squashed into biology or geography and sort of sidelined. And that's what we've got to change. If we want these nature literate, engaged and eco-sensitive subjects of this planet, then we need to start helping fill that gap. Um, so you drop off at the age of about 13 and Miles's work has shown that you don't really start to engage again until you're in your 30s, late 30s. That's a long time to, to lose a whole lot of people who are full of energy, full of ideas and full of passion, you know. If we get all old and jaded like me, that's when you want them out there and doing stuff, you know. Um, and so I, I couldn't work out how we were going to fill that 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 nature gap in in society. And we all go to school, um, love it or hate it. We all have to sit exams. We all get pushed through a system. So let's at least this is one part of the solution. Let's put it back into education. Let's make the GCSE in natural history, something that's there for everybody. And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, what where you come from, how you identify, it's there for you to engage with. And that's why putting it into the school system is so important. Not just make it an after-school club, something you have to pay for yeah. outside of school. It, it has to be open access, free to all, and for everyone to engage with. Um, and if it's taught well, and if it's taught passionately, and with this, uh, not just as a sort of dry subject, yeah. but with this, this wonder, then I think we'll start to produce the kind of citizens that can begin to make the decisions we will have to make as the decades roll on. Because we all know, and we've all heard from the cops recently, 
we're looking at a very difficult time ahead. And it's these young people that are going to have to live in that difficult time. And if they're going to make the right decisions, not only for people, but for the planet, we need them to be a lot more knowledgeable, a lot more engaged and a lot more connected to this planet we live in. And this was just one way. I don't think it's the only way. Of course, I don't. I don't think it's the silver bullet. Of course, I don't. But it's something. At least it's something that says you guys between the age of 13 and 35, we need you. Please come on board. Fantastic. I wish I'd had it when I was at school. Um, I mean, I was a complete academic, you know, just loved, loved languages, loved literature, loved history, loved all that. Um, but there is definitely a place, there's always been a place in my heart and, and you know, for, for, um, for, for, na for nature um, and to learn about nature. And I, I'm, I'm also interested in geology. I'm interested in trees and, and sort of all the whole, all the science behind it um, as well. So for me, that would have been amazing to have had that and I would have studied that alongside even though probably people would have perceived me as an arts student and languages and, and stuff but I just I hope when they do introduce it onto the curriculum that it's not like oh that's part of the science and you have to do one of those and two of those and three of those like it was in my time when I was doing my O levels um you know um I, I hope it's that anybody can pick it because that would that would be the ultimate I mean obviously you've got to get it on the system first and then you can kind of <laughs> can push it across but um can you tell us a little bit about um maybe what the course would would cover so to kind of give us an example of what what people would learn what um the idea behind the course is that um everybody who takes it will get an introduction to what it's like to study the natural world so they'll be able to name and sort of identify a name study record and monitor the wildlife around them. That's the kind of the core around which everything else will go. Wow. So the very heart of the GCSE in natural history is understanding the natural world on your doorstep. That's different to biology. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of that in the biology GCSE and there's a little bit of it in geography, but they're different subjects. Um, they are much more about big systems and big landscapes. This is about the individual animals and plants and birds that you live with. And you know the, the awful statistics that so many kids can't name a bumblebee. They don't know what a bumblebee is. They don't know what a dandelion is. They don't know what an oak tree is. You know, they can't name these things. Yeah. And so the natural history GCSE will teach you not only to name it, to say that's a that's a, an oak tree, but to know how it fits, to know what its job is, to know how it fixes soils and provides a habitat how it interacts with the world around it, how it interacts with us, um, how it, I mean, my original proposal was also how it inspired creativity, how an oak tree has inspired people to sit underneath it and write great books, mm. how they've looked at it and written poems, yeah. how they've looked at it and thought about ancientness and rootedness and proliferation and what it is to live in a forest or a community you know the natural world has been the source of our creative outpourings for generations yeah. and I wanted that to be part of the GCSE but the Department for Education uh, rejected it that side of it completely so there's no cultural content of nature in it at all mm -hmm. um, so what's left is this uh, connection to the animals and plants and that's great um and how to understand what a habitat is where mm. things live why they live there why they live there and they don't live over there mm. and and how habitats make up 
the nature of Britain. That's what it's about. One of the sobering things that's happened over the last, you know, 50 years or so is um, that we use a lot less nature words in our daily lives. So a study showed since the 1950s, um, nature, the the use of the word, well, the use of of nature words has dropped off dramatically in fiction, poetry, song lyrics, uh, and the arts in general. So nature appears a lot less often in Mm. literature than it did in the 1950s, for example. At the same time, um, the use of personal pronouns, me, I, mine, has increased by 50% in our language that we use on a day-to-day basis. So we've become much more inward and and individualistic and a lot less community and open to the natural world. So that's what I mean. It's showing up in our culture as well. So even more important, I would have thought, to make that connection live again. So, and allow young people to not only go out into the local park and study an oak tree through the seasons, study what birds use it, study what insects are on there, study how it interacts with the park around it, you know, what uses it for shelter, what's the soil like underneath it, all that stuff. They could do that. But they also go and sit down and look at it and write a poem and write a uh, whatever it is that, yeah. that fires in your brain. Uh, uh, that oak tree says so much to me about family and the longevity of life and being stable, being rooted, being calm, mm. being an object in a landscape that doesn't change as the landscape changes around you. All those things, and you st- suddenly start thinking in a different way. Mm. So it's a tragedy that it got taken out. It's a tragedy, but mm. it was given as a red line, so there was nothing I could do about that. Yeah. Uh, hopefully the teachers who are doing it will have that heart anyway and and well hope so <laughs> you know yeah, and they, they might encourage yeah might encourage the students to take it to another level or to do some interdisciplinary work with other teachers some schools might you never know uh, what what I'm hoping is that subjects other subjects uh, will start to use a lot more nature in them yeah. so you know English literature could bring more nature writing poetry whatever yeah. uh, nature connection into English literature courses the same in languages the same in mathematics why not use nature examples to do your maths with you know whatever nature is in everything and and so hopefully the GCSE will help inspire a general greening of the curriculum right across the board yeah yeah there's fractals in 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 maths in there and there's all sorts of yeah, yeah um really um, can you, because um, I've got you on here and you are an expert in everything <laughs> to do with the natural world. So um, can you uh, just, uh, because I'm, I'm, as I said to you before we, we started recording, I am a total nerd. I am a nerd. Um, it's, it's official. Um, I have nerd on my T-shirt. Um, can you give us an example maybe of something they're going to learn or that they could learn in the GCSE that would kind of sort of raise eyebrows? Um, and obviously, if anybody's listening to this podcast, they'll kind of go away and, and they might go you know they'll be saying oh there's a new natural history GCSE and they might remember this fact down the pub um or in the coffee bar sorry I shouldn't encourage drinking I just <laughs> there's lots of lovely examples where you think no way no way can that happen you know yeah. like we used to call them cabbage white butterflies those large white butterflies that, I mean everybody used to grow cabbages I'm yeah. sure you might remember you know yeah, they I do. covered in white butterfly yeah cabbage. always <laughs> and they might let them migrate over the north sea no butterfly might exactly so you know uh, it's that kind of example but a migrating butterfly migrating bird yes 
yeah. even little tiny birds yeah wow you know but a butterfly that gets you could blow and it would sort of go spiraling yeah. how does it get across the north sea yeah. how, does it, how, does it, yeah. how does it do that Lots of, and we get influxes of of painted ladies from europe you know and i love the idea that the north the gray wild north sea has these lovely orangey butterflies sort of skipping along over the waves and heading for our shores and it's that kind of thing just those oh. little bits i love the fact that the natural world that that a swift never lands unless it comes into your into the nest boxes to breed the whole of the rest of the year it drinks on the wing it eats on the wing it mates on the wing you know and and it it rides out the storms and the tempests of the planet and only lands to to have its babies how amazing is that i mean can you even begin to get your head around it um so the fact that that even the daily lives of creatures that we are so f or should be so familiar with just make us go wow all the time so it's that kind of thing if you look at a swift and rather than just see a black streak in the sky yeah. you just think i can't understand why it's not tired you know and the fact that we're seeing now more uh, wall you know we have two walruses now haven't we come ashore up in the northeast where oh, right. did that come from right the way down south you know swimming through the oceans and yeah. and um and the albatross that lives up in the the, the vents and cliffs an albatross should only be in the southern ocean how has it ended up in you know northeast england and yeah. flying around and they lock their wings with these great sort of hooks so that they can fly and they never get tired and then weeks at a time they just float over stormy oceans and I find that the whole thing just sets my brain whirling. I really do. And of course, the curlew. How could I not mention curlews? You know, with that most haunting and bubbling call. Um, that 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 it it can dip its bill into the soft soil, and the end of it is moving, so it acts like a little pair of pincers, and it's feeling around under the soil for for little worms mm. and grubs. The 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 end of a curlew's bill and other birds. Um, rhinokinesis it's called uh, opens independently so and they're very sensitive so they can feel for their food deep down so that great long bill is like a great big pair of tweezers with sensitive tips and, you know I mean amazing isn't it I never knew that I th mm -hmm. I, I love curlews I kind of I've, I didn't I, I never knew that so oh. they kind of say why so they go down and they can I mean they're yeah. beautiful um you beautiful. see how they twist around and they yeah yeah that's what they're doing feeling around and going into burrows and seeing what they can grab and then they pull it out and shake the legs off crabs you know they shake it so hard their legs fly off <laughs> <laughs> mad isn't it really really it is I really hope that this natural history GCSE is a it just flies um you know, I mean, you think about the scientists who are using biomimicry. I mean, just you mentioned about the curlew and, you know, even just being able to, you know, if you're doing exploration or excavation or something to have something that's really, I mean, they've probably got something and they maybe have used that and they knew it, but, you know, to have something hard and curled that will go in and then that's something that's flexible at the end that can identify and, and search or, um, you know, using using nature to inspire solutions you know yeah. um, and i think that biophilia magazine you know using nature being inspired by nature to help us live really full and fascinating and very beautiful lives yeah. that's really really important because yeah. we mustn't give the impression that the future is all about hair shirts and not doing anything and yeah. you know 
not eating this and not going there. It's not about that. It's just reorientating our desires and our wonder towards what enhances all of life, not just our own. And that's why I think, you know, your your magazine is really, really important. Um, and the fact that it's beautiful is really important as well. Well, that's lovely. Thanks for saying it. Um, I think it's probably one of the most, I think I'm proud of it in my life. I think um, I just, how it's come out and produced, it just looks lovely. Um, so, yeah. Um, so in, in an ideal world then, um, sort of talking about biophilic design in, in that sort of context and bringing nature in, um, how would schools be designed? Um, you know, would schools be close to nature or would they have, na I mean, I, I love the fact that you can have bug hotels and ponds and things in schools. Um, but, you know, how would you bring um, kind of nature into schools in order for um, okay. natural history, um, GCSE, to really um, yeah. be a constant once they're finished in the classroom and or they've gone out on the field and they've come back? You know, how would what, what elements would be ideal in a, in a school? Um, well, ideally, wouldn't it? Let's wave a magic wand and, and let's think yeah. big um, that the school playgrounds would be the grounds around the school would be just rich in nature and, yeah. and available. Yes, definitely places to go and play football and whatever else you want to do. But all those edges, all those yeah. corridors uh, full of flowers and, um, you know, moth traps and ponds to dip in and so on. Yeah. So that it's just there. You don't have to go anywhere, you, yeah. you know. In, but you can go outside at break time and you're not sitting on some concrete that you're yeah. sitting on something that maybe is wet and dirty but yeah. it has something interesting in it something very beautiful in it something yeah. intriguing in it you yeah. know so that's what i'd like i'd like schools to be to be little menageries if you like of of, of, of wonder that yeah. that kids can that as they walk to school as they drive to school, they drive through nature and nature just follows them right to the school door. And, you know, a lot of people, whenever I talk about this, a lot of people always, I get a comment, let's bring back the nature table, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether nature tables still exist in primary schools anymore and secondary schools, why not? You know, yeah. that yeah. would be great because it's tactile yeah. and we are tactile creatures. Yeah. Uh, we're not only tactile, we don't have to touch things smell of something the sight of something is really really but everything's interconnected we are sensorial beings yeah. and we want to use every sense that we have all day you yeah. know to to help us make all these interesting and, and exciting connections these creative connections as well as the science as well as the mystery as well as the facts yeah. it is absolutely essential that school environment promotes an emotional connection to nature as well as it does a scientific connection mm. we can't just be sort of data collectors in a world we have to be emotionally connected to that world emotionally engaged in it emotionally sensitive to it and 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 we need some of the best designers to think about what does that look like in a school setting and i would imagine all the harsh lighting, all the strange colours, all the sort of squareness could do with all softening out and yeah. being a lot more imaginative in, in how we make people feel. I don't know about you, but you walk into a brightly lit square corridor, which has yeah. nothing but metal and, and hardness in it. Yeah. It changes my state of mind. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that does affect kids in school as well. Yeah. 
I was I, I sort of my, my little personal fascination is with healthcare and and you think about these sort of healthcare environments where it is so sterile I mean naturally, naturally it is so sterile but it's like it's not softened even by colorways or by patterns on the wall or views out to nature I mean it, there's more and more happening um, but it's not happening quick enough um, I'm yeah. trying to policy change at um, a government level at the minute to try and get biophilic design incorporated into the nhs um but so it's a it's a start i'm starting you know um but um you know i i think with with schools i mean my my school if i remember it was was okay um we had playgrounds and, and things my junior school had like sort of lots of trees around it but it was like concrete um you know inner city london school but there were there were trees there were lots of trees and there were birds and obviously because of the the biodiversity was richer then um you know obviously if it isn't there now we need to bring it to us so we need to bring the bug boxes in and we need to bring the bee things yeah. i mean i don't i don't know if there's like an ideal if there's a school that's been designed that's like a kind of an exemplar of like the perfect um kind of biophilically designed school um you know if there's anyone listening please please email me write in <laughs> Editor at journal of biophilicdesign.com. It's such um, a good idea. You probably would find maybe private schools have a bit more resource to, to yeah. help with that kind of thing. Um, state schools probably don't. Yeah. So um, I'm sure that it does exist somewhere. Um, yeah. and, the, and the interesting thing is it doesn't have to be out in the countryside, does it? As you said, yeah. you grew up in London and, you yeah. know, there are some wonderful things in London, some great nature in London that that that's probably more than in some of the sort of barley barren fields out in East Anglia, you know. Yeah. But there's the great concrete deserts of intensive farmland. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got to change, we've got to welcome nature into our homes wherever we are, whether in the middle of the city or out in the countryside. Um, mm -hmm. And we've got to be prepared to live with it, to put up with some of the inconvenience of it, um, but to know that the more of it that we have around us, the better we're going to tackle the issues that we're all facing. Mm, absolutely. Well, Mary, um, I am going to ask you my final question. That I ask everybody um, about the magic brush of biophilia. So like as a, as a thing, um, but is there anything else that you would like to add uh, before we, um, before we get there? I think um, everybody can do something and, and whoever's listening to this, they say, well, it's all very well, you know, but what do I do? Everybody every single person on this planet can do something. Um, whether it's through what you buy or, you know, getting a bit more educated about things or joining, you know, supporting organizations. But on a more personal level, think of, pick something to love in yeah. nature and just love it. Just love it. Just just love something to death. You know, no, it's the wrong <laughs> phrase. Just love something to life. Like yeah. I did with curlews maybe. You know, because everything is connected to everything else. So my passion for saving curlews isn't just about curlews. It's about everything that lives. It's about the meadows and the moors and the and the coastlines um, that they that they live with and all the creatures that live with them. Um, so pick something to love. It can be anything and love it. Just just give it your all. Campaign for it. Care for it. Find out about it promote it, raise awareness, draw it, write a poem about it. Just get engaged in that emotional level with something and you will be amazed at who comes and stands by your side. Beautiful. So Mary, a uh, final question that I ask everybody 
um, on these podcasts. If you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like for you? It would look colourful. It would look as though it moved a lot because things would be moving. I look out my window now and I, not a bird, I know it's raining, but not a bird in the sky, to be honest. I want to see, I want movement, colour and sound and smell and uh, activity all around me. That's what I would want. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.